Welcome to the podcast of Trinity Episcopal Church in Vero Beach, Florida. We are glad to have you join us. Our hope is that this sermon will instill you with a profound sense of God's love and that you might receive and reflect His glory to your community. From the book of Acts, when Jesus had said this, as they were watching, He was lifted up and the cloud took Him out of their sight. In the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good morning, everybody. Glad to see you all here today. We've spent, as you know, the past six months or so looking at the earthly life of Jesus Christ. And you kind of know the big scenes, right? His birth, we call that Christmas. His death, Good Friday. Easter, his resurrection, you know all those. Now what? Where is he? What happened? Most people's knowledge of Jesus, even Christians, it's strange, they kind of forget the rest of the story. And so today I'm going to try to give you some more information about what happens next. And what I'm doing is today we are celebrating the Feast of the Ascension. Now the Ascension occurs 40 days after Easter. Jesus ascends back into heaven. It's why the Paschal candle is extinguished after the gospel is read, because the Paschal candle symbolizes Jesus' earthly presence in his resurrected state. And once he's ascended, poof, the candle goes out as a symbol that Jesus has gone back to heaven. So here's the question for today on this Feast of the Ascension. What is Jesus doing? Point one. Secondly, where is he going? And then thirdly, what happens next? So what is Jesus doing on the Feast of the Ascension? Profound. Secondly, where is he going? And thirdly, when is he coming back? So, you ready? Uh, And and of course, I will squeeze in mothers. Don't worry. Gosh, I made that that mistake once. Never again. But first point is, what is exactly is Jesus doing? This ascension into heaven. You know, I'll be honest with you. um, For me, when I would read the ascension story... It sounded kind of like something out of a children's book, right? And in fact, you know, if you look at any artwork about the Ascension, it doesn't, doesn't help you because the Victorians were uh, notorious for this sort of thing. The Victorian art of Jesus, right, he's, he's resurrected and then he ascends into heaven. And, he's, and they show him like floating about 15 feet above the ground in a long flowy dress and his hair's going and he's kind of tilted sideways like a Macy's Day Parade float that's kind of lost its tether and off he goes. Bye Jesus, see you later. Is that what your read? It was my read for a long, long time until I did two things. Uh, I understood biblical Greek and I had a concept of a first century Jewish worldview. So if you are wrestling with this idea of the ascension, where did he go and what is he doing? Pay attention. Here's the key. There are two reasons why most people misunderstand the ascension. First is a translation. I'm going to get to that. And the second thing is a Jewish worldview. I'm going to get to that too. First thing, ascension. Listen to this. The word used there for ascend, this is critical. The word there used for ascend, the Greek word is the word epiero. Epieru, actually. And It means, listen to this, it means to assume or take place, sorry, to assume a position of 
authority. I'm going to say that again. Apiero, to ascend, means to assume a position of authority. Let me give you an example that ties into this. Um, we don't have these in this country anymore, but some countries have a person called a, a king, right? And when you become king, you get a crown, and you get, you know, fancy clothes, and you get a, you get a, 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 a what do you call that? Whatever, thing. And then the, to, to, do the, to, to finally become the king, what do you do? You walk up the steps to the seat, and you do what? You ascend, ding, the throne. A king ascends his throne. And friends, that is the idea of the Greek apiro. Jesus' ascension is not him floating up into the sky like some helium balloon that your kid broke the string on at the Philadelphia Zoo. It happened to me once with my daughter. That is not the image. The image here is that Jesus has ascended to his throne, gone back to once from whence he came. And, and if you know your Christianity, which you do, Christian, Christian, Christianity, Jesus' earthly ministry, is a great big circle so far. He was, Jesus Christ is the eternal Godhead. He was not created. That's Mormonism. Christianity believes that Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. He was God, and he, be, he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. He came down from heaven. We're going to say that in the creed. He leaves his throne in heaven. He comes to earth. He is made a man. He was not before that. He lives his life. He is crucified, dead, buried, resurrected, and today, he ascends back to the throne from whence he came. Don't miss that. Because the world you're here is not Jesus floating away. See you later. It's Jesus going back from whence he came, returning to heaven. That's what he's doing, to his throne of glory, where he resides even now. So my second point then is then, well, what does that mean exactly? Where is this heaven. Where is it exactly? It's kind of an illogical question. But where is heaven? What is it? Well, if you look for a definition, you'll find something along the lines of this, which is awfully sterile, but it'll make sense to you in a moment, that heaven is a real but alternative time-space experience. What does that mean? I have the foggiest idea. Do you? You can't. Know why? You are a physical person who experiences time in a linear fashion. However, what Scripture tells us is that heaven surrounds us. It is around us. It is an alternative experience of time and physicality. It surrounds us. We can't see it, touch, taste, smell, or feel it. However, it is real. And, I'll submit to you today, heaven and earth, while distinct, they do intersect. So, for example, if heaven is right now where one of your deceased loved ones is, temporarily, and Jesus is on his throne of glory, ordinarily those two things stay distinct, except in a few moments you're going to see them collide. Because at the Eucharistic prayer, the priest says, Therefore, listen closely, you've heard me say this a hundred times, Therefore, with angels, okay, and archangels, okay, and all the company of heaven, guess who that is? dead people. 
We laud and magnify thy glorious name, evermore praising thee and saying, holy ring, holy ring. What's going on here is we are worshiping Jesus. At that moment, heaven and earth intersect. Heaven and earth collide. And the ringing of the bells is to simulate the sound in the temple when God became manifested in smoke. Do you see my point? Heaven is not just a fairy tale. It's not just wishful thinking. Heaven is real. Now, if you're a 21st century skeptical empiricist, like I was, you'd say to yourself, yeah, hold on. This is just wishful thinking. This is just pie in the sky. This is the kind of stuff people use so they can deal with the sufferings of reality. Oh yeah, not so much. Here's why. Everyone, you and I, and every human being that has ever lived, listen, we intuitively know that heaven is real. Every human being that's ever existed, every person, including you, even Stephen Hawkins, knows intuitively that heaven is real. He may deny it. They may try to squeeze out from under it. But everybody knows it intuitively. That even though we can't see it, we know it's real. Let me give you an example. I have at home, uh, we have a fish it's called, a, it's a beta fish. You ever see them? It's like the, they used to call them Siamese fighting fish. You can't, can't call them that anymore because it's not politically correct. But this Siamese fighting fish, he has a real name. It's Grace's fish, actually. I call him Lazarus because this Siamese fighting fish has come back from the dead five, six times. <laughs> and, and, and he sits right in a little bowl on the counter, right by the coffee pot. And every morning without fail, today being an example, I come to the coffee pot, I pour my cut of cof cup of coffee, and little Lazarus comes, and he comes fish swimming over to me, and he goes to the top of the, of the bowl, and he wants me to feed him, which I then do. And you say, oh yeah, that's just Skinnerian behaviorism, fine. You know, um, reward and all kind of thing. But, but here's what I want to submit to you today, and it's true. That little fish with a brain the size of a mustard seed, that'll be a great parable to preach someday. That little fish with a, a brain the size of a mustard seed, that little fish knows that there's something out there. He has no concept of, he's not sentient, I don't think. He doesn't know who I am, doesn't know my name, doesn't know what a human being is, doesn't know what coffee is, doesn't even know the food. It just drops in front of him. Bing. But he knows, listen, he knows something's there. If he knows anything at all, I mean, who knows? Um, he cannot explain it. He cannot comprehend it. He cannot articulate to you the reality outside of his fishbowl, but he does know that something's there. He reacts to it. You will save yourself a lot of trouble if you remember that you're like that fish. That you are like that fish. That we, you and I, live in a physical, empirical world. But we know, we all know, there's something more out there, don't we? Everybody knows that. Everybody knows it. All human cultures throughout history have believed in something beyond the physical world. Every, I mean, even, even in popular culture today. I'll give you an example. How many of you have been around people that are non-believers, don't go to church, don't know anything about Christianity or anything else for that matter, and then somebody dies and they throw out this platitude, well, he's in a better place. You ever heard that before? Begs the question, where is that and how do you know? Don't say that, by the way. <laughs> I did that one once too, never do that again. 
<laughs> but, but it begs the question, why do all humans through all time and all space, why do your non-believing friends still believe somehow there's something else better out there? Why is it? We can't taste, touch, feel, smell, or see it. Why do we believe it's there? And I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why. We believe it's there because we can sense it. We believe it's there because we can feel it. We believe it's there because we crave it. We believe it's there, friends, because you were made for it. Genesis chapter 2 tells us that. Did you notice in verse 9, I, look at it again if you get a minute. Um, in verse 9 from Acts, it says that Jesus ascended into the clouds. And that cloud is not a cumulus cloud. The, word, the Greek word there is the word nephile, and it means smoke. That's why we use incense at church, by the way, because smoke symbolizes God's presence. We see it in the temple. We see it at the transfiguration. And now we see Jesus as he ascends into heaven to assume the throne. He is surrounded by this smoke of God's presence, Verse 9, and then verse 10, I'd never noticed this before. It says, as they were gazing into heaven. Most people read that like this. Gazing into heaven. That's not what it means. The word to gaze is to do this. Right? To gaze at something is to experience something and go, what in the world is that? What I want you to see, this is profound. Jesus did not float up into the sky. Somehow, in some way, a hole is punched. A, a conduit, a wormhole, whatever you want to call it, nobody knows. They see the apostles get a glimpse of heaven to where Jesus goes. They gaze into it. The, the apostles catch a glimpse, if you will, of reality outside the fishbowl. Maybe a better way to put it is they get a glimpse of reality with Jesus leaving the fishbowl for heaven. And he ascends to his throne and sits on the right hand of the Father. The right hand of a person is the person who is entrusted with all authority, the right-hand man. So where is Jesus even now? He is in heaven as a physical, resurrected man. The Bible says he's physical. The biblical says he is resurrected. And he's ascended to the throne where he exists even now, you can't see it, and you can't smell it, and you can't taste it, but you sure can feel it, can't you? <laughs> Have any of you ever—this is a rhetorical question, because the answer is yes— Have any of you ever felt heaven, felt God's presence, fed, felt something you couldn't quite articulate, but it was real, and there's no convincing you otherwise? Maybe it's when your kids were born. Today is Mother's Day. Maybe it's when uh, somebody died and you were with them. Maybe it's when somebody was dying and they saw something. I've seen that a hundred times. Maybe it's when you're on the beach or you hear music or the choir singing that psalm, which I love. That's why we do it, by the way. Where have you experienced that heaven? Where have you felt it? That's where Jesus is. And sometimes, and in a few moments at the Sanctus, we will, those two things will collide and intersect. And that's where he is. And so, third, my final point is, well, now what? When is he coming back? Um, Episcopalians are kind of funny, right? When you talk about Jesus coming back, 
uh, we get a little squirrely, don't we, about that? Right? Ever, and, you know, and the reason is because, at least, and maybe this is my own sort of hang-up, but whenever I hear about Jesus coming back, I get, in my mind, an image of a guy with a sign, you know, on the side of the road. Jesus is coming back. Get ready. Right? I saw a bumper sticker once said, Jesus is coming back. Get ready. I love that. We wonder. We don't, we don't spend a whole lot of time there. I don't know why, but it's a shame. It's to our discredit, and here's why. We say it in the creed that he will come again and his kingdom will have no end. We do believe that Jesus Christ will return, that, he will, that the dead shall be raised, that he will set the world to rights. Did you ever notice something? People have an innate sense that things will get better. You watch political commentary on TV, and they will talk about the inevitability, and it depends on the cause, but usually it's something progressive. They'll say, the inevitability of social progress. You ever heard that before? That somehow we've all got this thing in our mind that things will get better. Why do we believe that? It's not true, worldly speaking. North Korea or India or Pakistan could push the button and wipe us out in a flash, literally. So why do we believe in heaven? Why do we believe that things should be better? Why do we believe in the inevitability of things becoming better than they are now? I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why. Because Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That's why. Because he is in control, and he tells us about heaven, and he tells us about his return. And when he tells us these things, you've got two options. You can believe him or not. But if you don't believe him, that makes him a liar. You're going to go there? Jesus tells us that when he comes back, the dead will be resurrected, reconstituted with physical bodies. That those who reject, you know, God is a respecter of human will. <laughs> and those who have rejected him and said, thanks God, no thanks, they will be resurrected and that God will grant them their wish and they will spend eternity in hell without God. Those who have requested to be with him, those that want to be with him, will spend eternity with Jesus in heaven. Evil will be defeated once and for all. Sickness will be eliminated once and for all. We will, friends, according to Jesus, we will in fact reside in heaven, a reconstituted Eden, a real physical place with real physical bodies with Jesus as our king. Don't you see? We are living in the final days. We are in the last scene of the play, the last chapter of the book, the final verse of the hymn. I'll confess to you that as a younger man, even when I was a younger priest, I didn't spend a whole lot of time thinking about this. I never really thought about Jesus' second coming. and I kind of knew about it. I said it in the creed. Never spent a whole lot of time there until I met Bertha Hollick. Um, Bertha Hollick, may she rest in peace, was when I was the rector of Trinity Church in Red Bank, New Jersey, Bertha Hollick was a 92-year-old giant. She's about this tall, <laughs> weighed about 65 pounds soaking wet. She was a spiritual giant. She had a profound impact on me. And the reason is whenever we would pray, me and little Bertha, I can picture it, her little hands, you know, we'd pray about her, for her husband who was very ill, or her family, or just giving thanks to God. Whenever we would pray, at the very end of the prayer, she would say the following words. She would say, Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Gosh, it's changed me. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. 
She was so, Bertha was so absolutely grounded, so completely focused on Christ's return that the joy, the victory, the fearlessness of knowing that this world is not the end and that Jesus has conquered it and that his victory is certain. St. Paul says, Bertha knew that the struggles of this world were nothing, nothing compared to the glory that shall be revealed. Romans 8, verse 18. And that is what made Bertha Halleck a giant. She could withstand anything because she knew that Jesus was coming back to get her. You know, today is Mother's Day, right? And if you forgot, there's still time. Publix has flowers on display, not to worry. Today's Mother's Day, and moms will tell their kids when they are little. Moms, if you're, if you're a mother, you've done this. Kid scraps, you know, get, it gets made fun of in the playground or scraps her, scraps her elbow or fails a test or whatever it might be. Mom will grab that kid and say, you know what, honey? Everything's going to be okay. Everything's going to be okay. You know, that's really only true if Bertha Halleck is right. Everything is only going to be okay if, in fact, Jesus Christ is going to return and set the world to rights. That the dead, when he comes back, the dead will be raised. That heaven will no longer be through a fishbowl, but an existential and physical reality with Jesus as our king. Where all the sadness and insecurity and fear will be wiped away. Where God will, as scripture says, wipe away every tear from every eye. Where, friends, justice will finally be served. If you live with your heart looking for Christ's return, you will be indefeatable. Because you know that the victory of Christ is inevitable. Where all the longings of the human heart will be met. Where all the things you've searched for in this world and couldn't attain will finally be made available to you. Where you and I, friends, when Christ returns, will finally be at peace. Thanks be to God. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to our Trinity Episcopal Church podcast. To find out more about the work God is doing through Trinity, visit us online at trinitybureau.org and follow us on Facebook.